you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you, please, to take a seat. If you have your Bibles, would you take a seat, please? And our brother and elder, Pastor Ted, we come here and we congratulate you. I'll have you all stand one more time for the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 12. I'm reading about the Passover from verses 1 through 15. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and you shall make the account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lamb at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the, and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your candles on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from your house. You may all have a seat. Thank you, Ted. Well, there's many things I'm thankful for this morning. I'm thankful, obviously, that we all have a tough opportunity to come before the Lord and to worship Him, that we can be together, that we can do so in freedom. Thankful for Michael Fong, who built this nursery pulpit for us, for our church, for a little man so we can see over the top and preach to you. But most of all, we're, we're thankful for our Lord and Savior, who died and shed his blood so that, as Peter mentioned this morning, we can worship God and give him what is rightfully his. Not because Christ died for us, that's, we owe the Lord everything but we're not able to because of our sin, but because Christ came and took the wrath of God on our behalf and did what we could not do for ourselves, we have the opportunity to know him and to enjoy his love and to celebrate him and to celebrate the relationship he creates. And that's a privilege that we should not take lightly, the gift of the Lord. So join with me now, if you would, and let's give thanks to Christ our King. Lord Jesus, what a wonderful Savior you are. Your mercies are new every morning, and 
faithfulness never ceases. Lord Jesus, if our sins were to be counted against us, we would not stand. We would perish in a minute or a moment. And yet we are here this morning and we have the opportunity to come before you. Children, husbands, wives, families, Lord, collegians, singles, Lord, all of us. We're here not because of us or our goodness, what we know, our efforts or achievements. Certainly not here because we are good Christians. Here, Lord Jesus, because you are our advocate. And in that place, you are willing to die. In that place, you are willing to pay for our last breath, the judgment that we owe, so that your wrath and judgment can be cast upon our sins. So that we may no longer belong to Egypt, so that we may no longer be sick, so we no longer belong to this world, but we belong to this world in Christ. Amen. And that, Lord Jesus, is the basis of our faith. So thank you so much. As we come to your word this morning, Lord Jesus, would you make yourself known in our midst through your word and through the power of your spirit? Would you shake and rattle our hearts, Lord Jesus, and show us, Lord, what we so desperately need to see which is not us, but you. In your name we pray, amen. The psalmist in Psalm 89, 46, writes at the very end, the very end of this psalm, he says, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? And who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? This past week, our time has been consumed uh, with the death of someone who was near and dear to many of us or all of us. And our world was heartbroken by the unexpected loss of a beloved sports icon, as well as his daughter in a helicopter crash. And it's a chilling and personal reminder of what we just read, of the vanity of life, that at any minute or any moment, God and death could take any one of us, regardless of our careers, our education, our ambitions, our accomplishments, and our talents, and even the talents and ambitions and accomplishments of someone like Kobe Bryant can go up in smoke in a matter of seconds and moments and minutes. Here, one minute and gone the next. And this death, in many ways, is a divine reckoning in the way that every death is a divine reckoning. A divine reckoning that really begs the question of all of us, are we ready for death? Are we ready for the loss of our life? Are we ready for the loss of the lives of those we love and cherish and hold dear to us. And the answer that we've seen this week, everywhere, is that from the richest and to the poorest, by and large, Very few people are ready to let go of this life and very few people in this world were ready to let go of the life of one of their beloved sports icons. And it's hardly surprising, really, when you think about it, about the outpouring of grief and pain. Those were two of the words that kept on coming up over and over again. And you would see, as I'm sure you did, right? Grown men, large men, men twice my size in tears. Men twice my size coming out publicly and exhorting people to pursue peace and reconciliation, whether or not they were believers or not. 
and going and publicly telling all these people around them how they love them and making the point because I, I never know and I don't do it enough and I never know what's going to happen next and I may never have another chance to do that. And to read all the articles encouraging people to tie up loose ends and to make peace with people they're alienated with. As we consider those things, it, it, it doesn't come, I think, for many of us, for this person who passed away and was killed in a helicopter crash. It, it doesn't come as a surprise when we see that outpouring of grief and pain. Because in many ways, he was a man whose life and legacy represents what we all desire. His life and legacy represents what we all hold dear. And his life and his legacy represents what we all idolize in this world. And we can connect with that and feel that because in many ways his story is our story. And if you've grown up in Southern California and if you're in Los Angeles, it's a part and fabric. You remember when he was drafted. You remember when he played his first game. You remember when the championships were won. And for years from now, we will all probably remember where we were and what we were doing when the news came in last Sunday. And in many ways, it's because he represented what we esteem and cherish and idolize and aspire to be. And he was the overcomer that this world desires to be a part of. And we see that in the way his death and his loss brought, you could almost say, much of the world to a halt. Humbling and uniting people of every color and class and country in sorrow and disbelief. And I know this sounds in many ways like a eulogy. But here I want to stop for a minute. And say as believers it's worth stopping for a moment and considering what a contrast all of this is to the life and the death of the Holy Son of God, Jesus Christ. What a contrast in the reactions of the world to the life and the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it certainly begs the question, what in our hearts do we esteem and who do we value? And who do we sorrow and who do we grieve over? This morning, as disciples and those of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ, we're going to gather around two tables and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And the Lord's Supper is a celebration of Jesus' life and his death and the new covenant that he has given us in his blood. And it's an ordinance or a sacrament that's been given by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself for his disciples. And he did so to prepare his disciples. The first Lord's Supper or the, first la the last supper was there to really prepare his disciples for his death. And then afterwards to be kept as a memorial so that we would remember his death rightly and that we would live rightly in light of his death. It was meant to be a new beginning for the disciples, radically transforming our lives. Now the sadness and the tragedy in many ways is that we've forgotten that or it's fallen by the wayside and it's become, as, as Peter alluded to this morning with worship, like church, something that we just go and do. And a number of you have brought that to my attention over the last several months with your concerns about how we partake of the Lord's Supper, with concerns about brothers or sisters who are in sin, who are coming and partaking of the Lord's Supper. And so some of you have come to me and you've spoken to me and said, we're concerned, we're concerned. And so this morning, and in the subsequent mornings that are going to happen on the first of the month when we gather together for the Lord's Supper, we're going to devote our time to hearing what Jesus has to say about the Lord's Supper. Hopefully, Lord willing, we're going to come back to ground zero. And we're going to allow him to prepare our hearts to rightly respond to his death and to see the joy and the grace and the beauty 
and the goodness that he gives, that there's something here worth celebrating, brothers and sisters. But there's also something here that we need to take reverently and seriously and come before him with the fear of the Lord. Because when all is said and done, the Lord's Supper represents and symbolizes and reminds us that for disciples, Christ, though he was crucified and died, he is alive and he is present in our midst, especially when we gather around his table. The Lord's Supper is a preparation not only for Christ's death, It is a preparation, brothers and sisters, for each one of our deaths and our accountability to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. Our reading earlier this morning on the Passover lamb is the Old Testament counterpart. And as you see, as Jesus prepares his disciples for the Last Supper and for his instituting the Lord's Supper, he does so during the Passover feast. And that is not by accident. And what he is doing is he is preparing his disciples through the Passover. He's preparing them for the Last Supper. And then the Last Supper is a preparation for his death, which is about to happen the next day, his crucifixion. And as you know, this will be a series and and. The focus this morning will just be at the beginning of it, and maybe the AV team can help me with my first slide. Thank you. This morning, we're going to be devoted to focusing on the preparation for the Lord's Supper. How did Jesus prepare the disciples for the Lord's Supper, and in turn, prepare his disciples for his death that was about to happen the next day. Matthew 26, 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe! to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. So we consider together this God-breathed account of the events that lead up to the crucifixion and death of our Lord and Savior. God shows us that this death is no accident. He shows us, by and large, that no death is by accident. And Later, Jesus will draw a connection between our sins and death. That death happens in this world to all of us because we are all sinners and we live in a fallen world. None of us is going to dodge that bullet. No death is an accident. But very clearly, as Jesus prepares his disciples for the Lord's Supper, he's showing them that his death 
especially is not an accident. From the very beginning of this passage, God shows us not only is Jesus prepared for his death, but in love he is actively preparing his disciples for his death. And he does so by reminding his disciples who he is. I'm going to say that again. He, he prepares his disciples for his death by reminding his disciples who he is. Could I have my uh, next slide, please? Thank you. And that's our first point for this morning. The Lord's Supper reminds disciples who Jesus is. Okay, when we come to the table, when we take the cup, sometimes we're focused on the elements. Sometimes we're focused, okay, we're Christians. This is what we're supposed to do. Sometimes we're focused, well, the Lord's commanded. He's instituted only two sacraments and ordinances, baptism and the Lord's table. I've got to do this. And what gets lost in the shuffle, brothers and sisters, is who Jesus is. And that's the very reason the Lord's Supper has been given to us. And Jesus very graciously and lovingly prepares his disciples to take the Lord's Supper, the preparation before the Lord's Supper, by reminding them who exactly he is. Part of the fear and sorrow surrounding death is that no one really knows when we or someone we love is going to be taken from us. For those of you who have medical backgrounds, you know, even at those points where someone is removed from life support and the doctors will come in and they will speak with the family and they will designate a time and that life support system is turned off. Even then, the doctors don't know when and how and there is a waiting time and period. But the best of technology and the best of science. And at the end of the day, Neither Steve Jobs nor Kobe Bryant could control their death. And for all men, we do not control death. Death controls us. Death, for all of us, is that reckoning that reminds us, rich or poor, that we are not God. As much as we try and live otherwise in many aspects of our lives. Death reminds us that we are but dust. That we are the creatures and the creation. We are not the creator. But in verse 17 through 19, as Jesus prepares for the celebration of the Passover feast with his disciples, he reminds them that for him it's quite the opposite. He is no ordinary man. Death does not rule over Jesus, nor do the circumstances around death rule over Jesus. Jesus rules over death, and Jesus rules over the circumstances, and Jesus rules over every last detail in the history of the world, including the exact minute and moment that he will die and that he will depart and be crucified. And by way of backtracking, at this moment, as Jesus comes in and begins preparing in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast with his disciples, as you go back earlier in the chapter in Matthew, you see in Matthew's narrative, Matthew points out that every level of this fallen world is trying to destroy Jesus. It's already moving in that direction, including the devil and including one of Jesus' 12 disciples. In Matthew 26, 3 through 4, the chief priests and elders, the power brokers of Jerusalem, the most powerful men apart from the Romans, the ones who actually control everything on the streets in Jerusalem, these men are actively plotting to arrest and kill Jesus by any means necessary. And then as you drop down to verse 14 through 16, Matthew shows us that Judas, one of Jesus' inner circle, not the inner three, but one of the twelve. He has just taken 30 pieces of silver for Jesus' life from the chief priests, and he is actively seeking any opportunity to hand Jesus over to the chief priests so that they can kill him. And so from a human perspective, Jesus is really a fugitive, and he's a hunted fugitive. And from a human perspective, he is in no position to make future plans. 
And yet in verse 17, when the disciples asked, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Jesus, with authority in verse 18, says, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand, or my time is near. And the word for time that is used here is kairos, not chronos. And kairos refers to, in Greek, the appointed, the divinely appointed time, or a divine appointment. And Jesus, of course, is referring to his crucifixion and his death. That this is divinely appointed. Nothing is going to stop that. That it's set and he knows when it's coming. But he also says, my time is near or at hand. And he's pointing out when he says it's near and at hand that it is close, it's coming, it is going to happen. Nothing is going to stop it. It's close, but it's not yet. And that is because Jesus has unfinished work to do. And that work is the work of God's word. And his work is to love his disciples, to be with them, to celebrate the Passover feast with them, and to institute the Lord's Supper. And so with authority, Jesus then says, I am keeping the Passover at your house with my disciples. Or some translations, I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And when Jesus says that, I will, or I am going to, or this is going to happen, he's pointing out, neither hell, nor the devil, nor Judas, nor anyone is going to stop Jesus from being with his disciples, and nothing is going to stop him from being at this particular house, at this particular time, to celebrate this particular Passover feast with my disciples. And why? You'll recall in what Ted read for us this morning, the Passover feast was a memorial feast that was ordained by God in Exodus 12. It also, in later times, became known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover came first, and following it, there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And over time, the two of them were referred to interchangeably. And it was a feast that was ordained by God, one of the three major feasts. And it commemorated the Lord God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. It was a feast that involved the slaying or eating of an unblemished one-year-old lamb. And it was very, very personal. There was to be one lamb sacrificed for each family. The head of the household was to go and get that lamb, to bring that lamb in for their family, and keep that lamb in their household for four days. You got to know the lamb. Maybe even there were names for that lamb. Maybe the children even got to know and play with that lamb and become a friend of that lamb. And at the end of the four days the head of the household would have to slit that lamb's throat and drain the blood and take that blood and put it over the doorpost and over the lintel of the door of the home because that's what God commanded and that was what was in God's written word. And originally that blood was shed and placed over the doorpost, they were told, in order to avert the judgment of the Lord who was coming into Egypt and would slay the firstborn of all families and all animals. And the blood was a sign for those in the households. A sign that the angel of the Lord, his judgment would pass over their homes when the blood was on the doorpost. And that was an act of faith. And forever afterwards, they were to celebrate at the beginning of the year because the Passover pointed to a new beginning. They were to gather together and do this and slay the lamb, they were to eat it together as a family along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And all of this was to be a memorial, a reminder of them of who God is and the role he played in their lives. That he is the God who had brought them out of slavery in Egypt. That he is a redeemer God and he is also a judge. He is the creator of the universe and he holds all men accountable. Life for life. But he is also the God who provides a way of salvation 
And he provides atonement and redemption for those who, by faith, hear his word and obey him. And so that eating of the lamb was a demonstration that these Jewish people were not only chosen by God and given his word and his salvation, but they in response by faith had chosen to obey. And that by the eating of this lamb, they were participating and sharing and showing that they were one with the salvation and redemption that God had provided for them. This was the feast that God had commanded the Jews to keep at the beginning of each year. And in Jerusalem, Josephus notes that at this time, by the time of, of Jesus' life in the temple, approximately 250,000 lambs were slain in the Temple Mount. And the hill behind in which they would drain the, the blood and into the, the area that it would go was like a river of blood as they did this over a period of days in order to provide enough lambs for those who were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. So why does Jesus, opposed on every front, with power and authority, insist and guarantee that he is not going to die until he has celebrated the Passover feast with his disciples. It's because Jesus is the holy Passover lamb of God's word. He is the one who, in love, will sacrifice his own life. He is the one whose blood will be shed to cover to forgive, to redeem, and to save his disciples from their sin and to avert the judgment of the Lord that they so rightly deserve. But he's going to do it according to every last word that is written in the Bible. He's going to do it according to God's will. He's going to do it according to God's word. And he's going to do it according to God's time. Not that of the devil, not that of Judas, and not that of the chief priests, and not that of anyone else. Now, are we reading too much into this? As we walk through Scripture, we see that everything points to Jesus being the Passover lamb, and everything points back. Isaiah 53 he talks about the suffering servant being like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. The Gospel of John, John the Baptist, not once but twice points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Apostle Paul to the early church, to the Corinthian church, a church that is just messed up, including how they celebrate the Lord's Supper. And what does he say to them? He refers to Jesus as Christ, our Passover Lamb. And then as we come to the book of Revelation in Revelation 5, where the Apostle John is given a glimpse into heaven and to see the celebration that awaits and to see the celebration and the worship that exists in heaven. And we think about our worship is meant to be a shadow and it's meant to be modeled after what exists in the presence of the Lord. How is Jesus worshipped in heaven in Revelation 5? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And so we see as the preparation as Jesus comes in and he's preparing his disciples for his death. No, my death is not going to happen until I shepherd my disciples. Until I share this feast with them and until I show them and remind them who I really am. I am the Passover lamb. Brothers and sisters, as we come to the table today, as we've come to the table in the past, as we come to the table in the future, how often do we forget who it is we're eating with? That Jesus is the lamb who was slain. And that it is only by his blood that we are able to worship and draw near to the Lord and to sit at his table. The Lord's Supper reminds us who Jesus is. And in reminding us who Jesus is, it reminds us of why he came. Could I have my next slide, please? Thank you.
The Lord's Supper reminds disciples why Jesus came into the world. I'm stating the obvious, right? Jesus didn't come into this world to play basketball. He didn't come into this world to win championships. He didn't come into this world to be a physician or a lawyer or an electrical engineer. He didn't even come into this world to inspire this world to be a better place or to inspire you to be a better person. What the Lord's Supper reminds us is that in love, Jesus came to do what we could not do for ourselves, brothers and sisters. And we forget that, don't we? When we look at our lives, when we look at our marriages, when we look at the challenges in our lives, when we look at the areas that we struggle with discontent or anxiety or frustration, what are those things? What do we get frustrated about? What do we get upset about? What do we get into conflicts with, with one another? So often they're the things that we can't change in our life or our circumstances. We think we should be able to do it. We think we should be better people, better husbands, better pastors, better whatever. But at the end of the day, our frustration and our anxiety demonstrates how little we think of our sin. Our children should be better children. They're doing a pretty good job this morning. But, you know, they should be able to. These people should be able to. My employer should be. My husband should be. My wife should be. We, the list goes down those things. And yet if we believe what Scripture tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that our righteousness is as filthy deeds before the Lord, and that there are no amount of works that we can do that are going to save ourselves... How do we possibly think, or why do we possibly think all of these things, and why all this frustration on everybody around us, including ourselves, that we fall short? The Lord's Supper is here to remind us, no, I'm a mess and you're a mess. And the only reason we're here is because Christ came and did what we could not do. He obeyed the written word of the Lord. He loved the Father perfectly because we love him very imperfectly. He loves you perfectly even if we love him imperfectly. And he's come to do what we cannot do. He's come to fulfill the written word of the Lord. A written word that provides a plan of salvation for unworthy sinners like you and I, so that we can be united with a God we don't deserve. But to do so in a beautiful fashion that we cannot do. And, and that's what the Lord's Supper is reminding. And this is what he's reminding them of as he begins to prepare them and begins to eat and celebrate this Passover feast with them. That was the meaning of the Passover feast. The Passover feast was showing them you didn't save yourselves every time you gathered the first of the month. You didn't bring yourself into the promised land. You didn't make things right with God. The reason you're different from the Egyptians is not because you're, spe you're special, you're smart, you're good, you're, you're excellent people. And God has to remind them of that repeatedly. You're here because God stepped in and he saved you and he provided a Passover lamb for you. The Lord's Supper reminds us, brothers and sisters, that Jesus came to do what we could not do. He came to fulfill every last iota and dot and letter and word of God, the written word of God. Why? Because he is the Lamb of God and he is the living word of God. And this is what he shows them in verses 20 through 25 as he begins to eat the Passover feast with the disciples. Verse 21 says, and as they were eating, he said, truly. And that word truly is amen. And when Jesus says amen, truly, he's saying, I am speaking the word of the Lord. I say to you, one of you will betray me. Verse 22, and they were very sorrowful, and they began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Verse 23, he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Now, it's only later that the disciples realize by the power of the Holy Spirit 
that Jesus is not simply foretelling or prophesying how he's going to die. Jesus is not just a prophet who speaks about the future. He's not someone who, oh, I've got an anticipation. I'm going to die young. Jesus here is making reference to the words, the inspired words of King David in Psalm 41, verse 9. And he's showing them that he is the fulfillment of God's word. He has come to fulfill God's word. Verse 9, even my close friend, Psalm 41, 9, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Psalm 41, verse 9. And then when you read and go home and read Psalm 41, you're going to see that there are references to the resurrection about how the Lord is going to lift him up. And these are words spoken by King David, probably without an awareness of how this is going to be fulfilled or the completion of it, but ultimately Jesus is showing his disciples, I have come to fulfill my Father's word. I have come to do my Father's work. And because of that, I am going to die, and I am going to be your Passover lamb, and I am going to save you from your sins, but I'm going to do so by way of the cross. And he's showing them, even as his life is going to be given away, in love he has come according to God's word, not to take, but to give. And so in love, his holy life will be given, not taken. So in verse 24, he declares, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. The Son of Man is a messianic title. When you go back and read Daniel, it's a reference to God's King who is coming to do God's work and to fulfill God's will. And that term, the Son of Man goes, it's actually a little more literally the Son of Man is going to lead the way. He's going to take the initiative. He's going to do this. We have this image of Jesus that this is sort of a passive crucifixion. He just let go and let God. They're coming for me? Okay, whatever you want. But Jesus is pointing out to his disciples, I'm going to die. I'm going to die according to God's word. Every event that is leading up to it is going to be a fulfillment of God's word. I have come to fulfill the word of the Lord because his plan of salvation is perfect. Yours is not. And this isn't going to happen passively. I am actively going to lay down my life for you. He's demonstrating to them that this is God's love. God's love is not a feeling. God's love is not an emotion, though there may be feelings and emotions that accompany it. God's holy love is God's self-giving, self-sacrificing initiative. It's his choice. Jesus shows them in love. It is his initiative to come and to be rejected as a ransom for many. It's his initiative to come and be betrayed by the worst of men. It is his initiative to come and be bruised for our transgressions. It is his initiative to be humbled and to suffer and die for our sins. For what reason and for what purpose? so that we can be with him. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's Supper is here to remind us Jesus came so that we could be together with him, so that we could be present with him. And the Lord's Supper is a testimony as Jesus is showing them, nothing is going to stop me from being with you, my disciples. Not hell or not the worst of men, they are not going to separate us. In fulfillment with God's word, God's purpose is God's love. And God's love and his holy love is that he will not overlook sin, but he will atone for sin for the purpose so that we might draw near and be together with him. It's the love of God so that we might be one with him.
Brothers and sisters, we have to orient ourselves a little bit with this, okay? Because Jesus is showing them here, he did not come to be a superstar. And he did not come to be a martyr. In love, he came to obey the word of God so that we could draw close to him. In love, he came and placed his life in our place so that we could be removed from slavery and brought to freedom. So that we could move from death to life. How? By the giving of his body, by the giving of his blood as a once and for all sacrifice for sin. And that's why in verse 24 he writes, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But then Jesus adds at the end, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Could I have my next slide, please? This is our final point for this morning. The Lord's Supper reminds disciples of their relationship with Jesus in the world. The Lord's Supper reminds disciples of their relationship with Jesus in the world. Jesus, as he's preparing them, and he's showing that he's going to be betrayed. He shows them, one, who he is. Then he goes on and shows them, two, why he has come. He has come to be humiliated and rejected by the world. He has come to bear the wrath of God for the sins of men. So that we might go free. But then he points out as he prepares them for the Lord's table and the Lord's supper. He reminds them. And the Lord's supper does this. He reminds them and the Lord's supper reminds us of what our relationship is with Jesus. And what our relationship is with the world. What Jesus makes clear from the start is that the Lord's Supper is not an open invitation. It's not an open buffet. It's not a house party where anybody can walk in at any time. The Lord's table is by invitation only. Jesus has come to celebrate the Passover feast with who? My disciples. The Lord's table is for disciples only. And Jesus is the one who chooses who eats with him. And this highlights our relationship with Christ, but it also highlights our relationship with the world. When Jesus says, I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples, he's drawing a line. And the Lord's table draws a line. Who are his disciples and who are with Jesus and who's of the world? And when Jesus says to his disciples, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, he prepares the disciples for the Lord's Supper, what he's going to institute in a few moments, by calling them to question their hearts. Not just Judas, if you notice. He asks all of them, or says to all of them, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now Jesus could very easily have said, one of you is going to betray me, and it's Judas, and here he is. Could have pulled Judas aside privately and said, Hey, you're going to betray me. And you get the sense as you read the Gospels that the disciples already had the feeling that Judas was kind of a shady guy. But nonetheless, Jesus doesn't let them off the hook. He allows them to feel very uncomfortable. He raises this to them so that they will each question their own hearts. Verse 22 says, and they were very sorrowful, and they began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? And they're not given any certainty. And I believe what Jesus is doing here is he says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, is he's preparing them by calling them to consider what their true loyalties are. Showing them they don't even know their own hearts. It's calling and questioning them, who is really their Lord? Now that word betray, that one of you will betray me, quite literally, it's to hand me over. It's translated in the Bibles as betray. But it's to hand someone over. It's to deliver someone. And quite literally, one of you is not going to hang on to me and keep me. One of you is going to give me away. 
And he's drawing a distinction among his disciples. There are any number of you who are sitting at the table. Some of you will hang on to me during testing and trials. Some of you are going to give me away. In fact, all of the disciples are going to give him away. But they will be restored. But one in particular is going to give Jesus away permanently because he never was with Jesus in the beginning. Jesus doesn't rush in to give these disciples an assurance of salvation. Instead, he questions their salvation. And we see Paul follows this pattern in 2 Corinthians 13.5 when he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. This is what Jesus does before the Lord's Supper. Brothers and sisters, when we come to the Lord's table, before we come to it, we are to examine our hearts and examine our loyalties. Are we clinging to Christ or have we given him away for the things of this world, just like Judas? 30 pieces of silver, a career, my family, my friends, my sports, pornography, whatever it is that's out there, the respectable things and the non-respectable things. And Jesus is showing them as he comes and, and gets closer to the Lord's Supper. What the Lord's Supper essentially is, it's a celebration of sharing in the life and death of Jesus. And there's a choice here, and there's a demonstration. We are either sharing in the life and death of Jesus, or we are rejecting the life and death of Jesus, and we are sharing the life and death of this world. This world is divided into two sets of people, those who share in the life of death of Jesus and those who share in the life and death of this world. And that's what's going to shape our destinies, but that's also going to shape our marriages, our parenting, and every aspect of our lives. Whose life and death are you sharing? Are you sharing the life and death of the sports superstars who make incredible amounts of money and have the best life now? Are you sharing in the life of the corporate executives? where everything is about this world and this life and this kingdom? Or are you sharing in the life of the one who in this life is being rejected and humiliated and cast aside, but nonetheless rests in the very love of his Father and will do anything and everything in order to ensure that he will continue his love for his sheep and his flock? The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. As Jesus pronounces the divine woe on Judas, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus reminds them that he is not only the Passover lamb, but he is the sovereign creator and judge of all. And he reminds us, even as 1 Samuel 16, 7 reminds us, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Jesus pronounces a curse on this disciple who comes to the table with motives that are directed in a different direction because of the idolatry of his heart. And he shows his disciples, even through his crucifixion, that he personally holds all men accountable for their choices. His crucifixion is God's plan. Everything is happening as God has written it. But make no mistake, brothers and sisters, each one of us is accountable for the choices we make, especially those who come to the table of the Lord and profess to be disciples. In fact, Jesus once again shows that the judgment to those who profess to be disciples and come to his table, and yet they belong to the world, the judgment on them is going to be much more severe and much harsher than it is for the pagans who are in the bars out there who want nothing to do with Jesus. Now that's sobering, brothers and sisters, and it's serious. But it's sobering and serious because it is meant to shine the light on what Jesus is doing. 
If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, if he has saved you, if you're covered with his blood, you belong to him and you are precious to him. And he is not going to let anything, Satan, the devil, the things of this world, come in between him being present in your life and you being present in his life. And he is willing to die and to give his life in order to make that a reality. And that, brothers and sisters, is a wonderful and beautiful thing. And that's why the Lord's table should be an incredible celebration. Because it's a celebration of mercy and grace that we don't deserve. But it's a celebration of Jesus drawing us near to his, his heart and to his Father and to his Spirit. But for that very reason, brothers and sisters, it is something to be taken seriously. It's something to challenge us. What indeed are we hanging on to? Who are we worshiping? Do we belong to Jesus or do we belong to the world? And brothers and sisters, this morning as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's table together, I raise this issue because it's Jesus himself who sets the line. You either belong to the world and you're worshiping the world like Judas or you belong to me and you're worshiping me. You need to stop for a minute because sometimes you don't even know your own hearts and I don't know my own heart, so we need to examine our hearts. It's why the Apostle Paul with the Corinthians encourages and exhorts them to examine their hearts before they come to the Lord's table so that they are not judged by the Lord. And then after they do, to celebrate in a manner that's worthy of the Lord's table. But I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, if you have not repented, if you are living a life of idolatry, if there are things that are more important in your life than Jesus, if you're not walking in a manner that's obedient to him, then you are no different or no better than Judas. Professing to be a disciple, but waiting for the opportunity to benefit or profit from Jesus, one foot out the door to get your money and to cash in for a better life now. The good news of Jesus Christ is for us, he has given us this opportunity to repent and to turn from our sins and by faith cling to Jesus rather than hand him over and what we should be betraying and what we should be handing off are all those idols that keep us from the Lord, the things of this world. For some of us it might be our careers, for some of us it might be our families. I'm not saying give away your family, I'm talking about putting it in place of Christ. For some of us, it's lust and pornography. For some of us, it's relationships. For some of us, it's our work. For most of us, it's our pride. Our Lord and Savior is so good and so sweet. He does not come initially to judge. He comes to save and to call sinners to repentance. And he does so by preparing us for the Lord's Supper. And by asking us to examine our hearts and consider, are we the ones who will betray him? Or by faith, will we betray the world in exchange for a Savior who will stop at nothing to love us and to draw us close to him? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what a Savior you are and what you have done for us. As we come to your table, your table reminds us that you are no ordinary man. That you are our Passover lamb. As we come to the Lord's table, we are reminded that you came to obey God's word and to give your life as a sacrifice and a ransom for the sins of many. As we come to your table, we're reminded we have a choice to make. Are we disciples? of you or are we disciples of the world Lord Jesus forgive us for our sins and for the many many things that we have held on to in your place would you enable us Lord Jesus to cast them aside would you give us the faith we need to ask you for forgiveness for our sins would you forgive us as a people Lord would you enable us by faith to let go of these things and to come to you the Savior who beckons us, who embraces prodigal sons who come home.
puts on them new clothes of righteousness and slays the fatted calf and celebrates and rejoices more so over one sinner who returns than the many who are already saved. Lord Jesus, would you enable us to come to you? In your name we pray, amen.